I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster. I don't know how well my microphone is picking things up, but my cat Hepburn is here purring extraordinarily loudly because you know what? She's excited about this week's episode because it features numerous house pets. Is that why? Is that why you're so excited? So this is season three of Vulgar History and the theme for this season has been and continues to be how to lose a queen in nine days aka the lady jane gray scenario and what we've been doing is looking at we're in the middle of looking at nine women slash girls including jane gray herself and looking at how their their lives help to explain this weird thing that happened where jane gray 16 year old girl kind of became queen of england for nine days and then was sent to jail and then was executed and last time We looked at Lady Jane Grey herself, but the whole Lady Jane Grey scenario did not happen. It was not specifically about her as much as she was an interesting person. The the whole situation started with the first, the woman who we talked about in the first episode of this season, Mary Tudor, who is King Henry VIII's youngest sister. She had two daughters, Francis and Eleanor, and then Jane Grey was the daughter of Francis. So... Whoever the oldest child of Francis had been might have wound up in the same situation Lady Jane Grey did. But Lady Jane Grey was removed from being queen. That didn't remove the threat 
of the Gray family entirely because Jane had two younger sisters. And today we're looking at the middle Gray sister who was born Lady Catherine Gray. And if we're comparing the three Gray sisters, Jane, Catherine, and Mary, to famous groups of women or sisters in literature. So if we're looking in a Pride and Prejudice type situation, Jane Gray was the, the Lizzie Bennet. She was the, the the intellectual of the group. She was sort of the, you know, not like other girls of the group who didn't put as much weight as some of her siblings or her parents on, you know, marriage and romance and that sort of stuff. Catherine, who we're looking at today, is very much the Lydia Bennett in this scenario. So Catherine was very much more into romance and pretty things and dresses and parties. And as much as Jane was not suitable to be queen and wasn't interested in being queen, Catherine also was very much not, but with the death of Jane, that's the role that she wound herself landed into. If you're not into Pride and Prejudice, I will compare it to In Little Women. Lady Jane Grey is our Joe, and Catherine is our Amy. And again, just so that my my prejudices are out there, I'm a total Amy girl. So Catherine Grey is, she's my girl. And her story, some might say it's a sad story. I would say just because a story ends sadly doesn't mean it was a sad story. This is, in fact, a story with a lot of very cool, exciting things happening in it that happens to end not wonderfully for her slash anyone. So let's dive in. So Lady Catherine Grey was born on August 25th, 1540 at Bradgate Park, the family property of the Grey family. Just to put this in a place and time, so 1540. At this point, Henry VIII was still king, and he was at that point in the midst of his brief fifth marriage to Catherine Howard. I'm going to propose Catherine Gray might have been named after Catherine Howard, but then when Catherine Howard fell from grace, it was okay because Henry's next wife was Catherine Parr, so being named Catherine was still an okay name to have. I'm guessing this because her older sister Jane had been named after Jane Seymour, who had been the queen when she was born, because the queen just kept switching. So Catherine was the second surviving child born to Lady Frances Brandon, who we talked about a few weeks ago, and her husband, Henry Grey, the first Duke of Suffolk. So Lady Jane Grey was already born because she's the oldest sister. And then five years later, the third Grey sister was born, who's Lady Mary Grey, who we're going to talk about maybe next week. The three Grey girls were royalty because their mother's mother was Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary. The Grey sisters didn't have the title of princesses, but they were treated with the respect appropriate to royalty, and they got to be called ladies. So Henry VIII died in 1547. Catherine Grey was seven years old at the time, and the new king became, as we have talked about one million times already before in this podcast, his nine-year-old son, who became King Edward VI. So at this point, Nine-year-old Edward becomes the king. Catherine Grey was fourth in line to the throne. So first in line to the throne was Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, then Henry VIII's daughter, Elizabeth, followed by Catherine's older sister, Jane. So Catherine, fourth in line of four, four young, youngish women. So while it was very unlikely that Catherine would ever become queen, she and her sisters were all seen as valuable marriage prospects just because that's a lot closer to being the monarch than most people were around then. So the girls were all provided with a thorough education, including learning Latin, Greek, French, music, and the arts, and were raised in the Protestant faith, 
which is what everybody was into at that time, except for the Catholics. But again, we've covered that in previous episodes. So Edward was the king for six years. And then when he was 15 years old, he fell ill with, I believe, tuberculosis. And his advisors, who mostly had the last name Seymour and were mostly dirtbags, began scheming to marry their sons to the Grey Girls so that these adult men could be closer to the increasingly powerful Grey family. Because Edward's death just meant the Grey sisters were that much closer to power, which made them very appealing child brides to ambitious men and their sons. So the thing is that the Greys were Protestant, unlike Mary I. And so this is the the John Dudley of it all, where he was thinking like, okay, if I can position Jane to be the next queen, then that's good for me, John Dudley, because I'm going to figure out a way to make that work best for me. So the whole thing happened with the will. Edward rewrote his will and he made, he removed his half-sister Mary and Elizabeth from being the heir, making the new queen his cousin, Catherine's older sister, Lady Jane Grey. And until Jane had a child, Catherine would be Jane's heir. So a few months before Edward died, 15-year-old Jane and 12-year-old Catherine Grey were married off in a double wedding ceremony. Jane's husband was Guildford Dudley, the son of the king's powerful chief minister, John Dudley. Catherine's husband was named Henry Lord Herbert. Mary Grey, the third sister, was just eight years old. She wasn't married to anyone, but she was betrothed to their cousin, Arthur Lord Grey of Wilton. So the double child bride wedding was a huge event with lots of feasting and partying and the, the whole Tudor style. We talked about an episode about Catherine's mom. Francis liked to throw a party, so I'm sure it was a major event. And even the king, 15-year-old Edward VI, attended the wedding. This is one of the last weddings he attended before he died. At age 15, when he died, Lady Jane Grey was declared the new queen. And this is where, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, like, hit pause, listen to the whole Jane Grey thing, and then come back here. I'll just give you a sec. So Jane became queen for nine days and then was executed a year later. So being a pawn did not work well for Jane, nor would it for anyone, unless unless she'd been a boy or a man. I don't think anyone could have survived that whole thing. It was a bad plan. John Dudley made a bad plan. That's what happened there. So Mary I took over, becoming Mary I. Jane Guildford and Jane's father, I think Guildford's father, everyone was just thrown in prison. They were executed. All of their lands and money were confiscated which left the Grey sisters and their now-widowed mother effectively penniless and bankrupt. They also had an incredibly poisonous reputation because they were Jane was at the middle of everything that happened, and their father, Catherine's father, Henry, was kind of a key player in all of that. So this spoiled the marriages for both, the matches for both of the sisters. So the Herbert family quickly annulled Catherine's marriage to their son, and the Wiltons ended Mary Gray's betrothal to their son. So Catherine was now 14 years old, a half-orphan, because her father was dead. Her mother was still around, and she had lost one sister, only one sister left, and was now the eldest Gray sister. And despite their horrible reputation at this point, and the fact that they were effectively poor, until Mary I had a child of her own, Catherine was again potentially heir to the throne. So at this point, the Greys found support from a surprising person, which was Mary I, their cousin. She took Mary took pity on her young cousins and their mother and invited them all to royal court. So a lot of this was because Francis, the uh, 
Chris Jenner of her age just like was really good behind the scenes wheeling and dealing and getting them back in favor. So Frances was still eyed with some suspicion for potentially her role in the Lady Jane Grey situation, but Mary was willing to overlook that to some extent. The Grey sisters and their mother were given precedence at state events, even ahead of Elizabeth. By, I mean, like, I think this means, you know, when they were walking in, the most important person was first, which would be the queen. Then the Greys were behind her, and then Elizabeth would be behind them. Catherine herself took on a special role at the coronation of Mary I, and she was among the guests at Queen Mary's marriage the following year to Philip of Spain, who, just for the record, was also terrible, but we won't get into that right now. Catherine and Mary Grey were not literally princesses, but they were treated effectively like princesses, which meant things like having their trains carried by their own ladies-in-waiting during important events. Both sisters were appointed to the role of ladies of the bedchamber, which is kind of the highest position you could get. That means you get to be in the private with the queen, I don't know, helping her with her hair and doing her makeup and stuff. So it was having private alone time with the king or the queen was kind of the most valuable thing you could get. There were rumors that Mary intended to adopt one or both of the Grey sisters, maybe to make their status as her heir even more ironclad, which is interesting because I feel like they were Protestant and she was Catholic, but family was first, just like in Fast and Furious. So one year after Mary became queen, Catherine's mother, Frances Brandon, suddenly remarried to a man named Adrian Stokes, who was a man far below her social status. And that was, as we covered in that episode, partially, almost definitely because Frances just didn't want any future children she had to be at the same sort of risk that happened to Jane, who was executed at age 16. So any children that she and Adrian had would be lowborn and therefore not at all considered to be the new king or queen. Because of this new low status marriage, Frances left royal court. And with her gone, that meant that Catherine was also sent away. So she was sent into the care of Anne Seymour, the Duchess of Somerset. This Anne is the widow of Edward VI's former Lord Protector. So although Anne was technically now her guardian, Catherine remained at court. Oh, okay. So just her mother left. Catherine was still there. And because her mother was gone, she needed a guardian. So the guardian was Anne Seymour. And so Catherine became best friends with one of the other ladies-in-waiting, whose name was Jane Seymour, who is not the same Jane Seymour who is married to Henry VIII. That was years ago. This is just someone else with the same name. And this Lady Jane Seymour is the niece of the other one. So this Lady Jane Seymour is also an incredibly cool person. So there were three Seymour sisters, which is a nice parallel. There was Jane, Anne, and Margaret Seymour, and they were writers. They were young women teen writers. So their published works includes a poem written in 1550 that was the first female-authored English-language encomium, the only work by English women published in Latin in the 16th century, and the only work by any English women published in any language before the 1560s. This poem, which has a long title in Latin that I am not going to even attempt to pronounce, but I'll put it in the show links, was written as a tribute upon the death of Queen Marguerite of Navarre, who was herself also a writer. So Jane Seymour, very cool, accomplished person. They're sort of like the original Bronte sisters, Jane Anna Margaret Seymour. So Catherine Gray, great, great option, great choice and best friending. So they were close in age. Catherine was two years older than Jane. 
Both of them had gone through having their fathers executed because Jay and Seymour's father had been the king's protector who, whatever, all the Seymour men were awful and all the Seymour women were kind of cool is what I'm seeing. So they had this bonding experience in common. Both of them were teenage girls who were ladies-in-waiting whose fathers had been executed as traitors and they'd also known each other on and off for most of their lives. Jane was also tangentially related to the royal family, so they had that in common. Because Edward VI had been her cousin and for a while, Jane Seymour was a possible wife for him. Edward, of course, died age 15, not being married to anybody. But there was a lot of talk about who who might he marry. Jane Grey had been another person, potentially, that he would have married. Catherine and Jane, like other girls at this time, in this time before central heating, would share the same bed for warmth and also probably had some fun sleepovers and gossiping. They, were, they became his closest sisters. Catherine apparently confided in Jane that she hoped to be able to reconcile with Lord Hertford, her brief childhood husband. And then, in the summer of 1558, influenza came to town. So it tore through England and the royal court. And Lady Jane Seymour was one of the people who got sick. So she was sent to recuperate at her family home at Hamworth, and Catherine was allowed to come to keep her company because everyone knew they were such good friends. While they were there, Jane's brother Edward, a.k.a. Ned, happened to be at home hanging out and visiting. And this is where I just want to let you know what everybody looks like in this situation. Catherine was by now 17 years old, and everybody said she was gorgeous with golden red hair, like all of the Tudor women tended to have had uh, blue eyes and a striking profile and a profile was very important thing back then you wanted to have like a good nose ned was 19 years old so just two years older he was slim with dark eyes and dark hair and also a nose that people writing about him seemed to have found very appealing and he was kind of his personality was sort of like an arrogant asshole sort of thing but he made it work he was handsome and stuck up but you kind of liked that about him somehow so he was he like jane So the Seymour family were distantly descended from the medieval English king, Edward III, meaning that they, the Seymours, weren't directly in the current line of succession, but they were closer than many other aristocrats to this. So what this meant is that if he and Catherine, for instance, happened to get married and have a child, that child would have the combined claim of Catherine's Tudor ancestry, as well as Ned's, I believe, Plantagenet ancestry. So that child would suddenly become a major threat to be maybe the next king and or queen. Especially if that child was a son, for instance, because it was still just all girls and women, potential heirs going on all over the whole family tree. So just bear in mind that Catherine and Ned, were they to fall in love, was kind of a threat to the entire Tudor dynasty succession. And guess what? They fell in love because they were two hot young teens and Tudor times, influences coming through, and they're like, we only live once, etc. So Jane Seymour, like legend status, best friend, she was getting better from influenza and she helped out by sending secret messages between Catherine and Ned all summer while they all hung out at Hamworth. Uh, Ned even brought up the idea of marriage secretly in some of these letters, which is the very idea of their, these two getting married was very dangerous, but they were young and in love. So his motives are unknown. Some people think that maybe he was just after Catherine for her money and connections. But I think if that's what he's doing, then why would he be sneaking around like this? He'd want it to all be done on the up and up so that they could be officially married and everyone would know about it. Sneaking around with her wouldn't really get him the money or power. So I think they were both into this in a real way. So the thing, though, is that because Catherine is such a close relative to the queen, she had to get royal permission to marry 
anybody. And this is also because at this point, too, she's a potential heir to the throne. And there's the whole thing about if a woman becomes queen, like she can be queen, that's fine. But she'll probably get married to a man and then the man would kind of be in charge of her. So whoever Catherine married was very important because he was potentially going to be the new king. But then Ned's mother, Catherine's guardian, and Somerset found out about this borderline treasonous summer romance and wanted to put a stop to it. And I mean, understandably, Anne had very recently seen a lot of her relatives, like the whole Seymour family, executed very recently. So she was understandably concerned about her son's potentially deadly love match. So she ordered Ned to forget about Catherine, but he was like, is it so wrong for two people who enjoy each other's company to spend time together? It's not an exact quote, but that sort of feeling. And he refused to stop hanging with Catherine, but then summer ended and so did the influenza epidemic. And Catherine and Jane were sent back to royal court and it was just like in the musical Grease, their summer dreams ripped at the seams, but... I'm sure you suspect this wasn't the end of this ill-advised and dangerous love story because it was not. Oh, those summer nights. So the thing is that back at Royal Court, everything was a new kind of chaos. And this is a lot of Catherine's story and a lot of what happens to her. She was able to do because everybody was busy paying attention to other stuff and not worrying much about her. So what was happening right now is that Queen Mary I had also fallen ill during the same influence epidemic. And she had a lot of ongoing chronic health issues and she also had a habit of religiously fasting too much like starving herself which i think probably didn't help very much and she everyone kind of saw like oh she seems to be dying so there wasn't an opportunity for catherine to talk to her and be like hey can we get permission to get married and then sure enough queen mary the first died that november So Catherine, as one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, helped to lay out Mary's body for embalming. And then Catherine was also one of the ladies-in-waiting who took turns, standing 24-hour watch in the chapel where Mary's corpse was set out for months before the funeral, which Catherine also attended. And so the queen had died without children. So her successor was her younger sister, who became Queen Elizabeth I. And just people just keep like falling away like Tudor women dominoes and Lady Catherine Grey was now next in line to the throne because all of the other contenders were all dead. So while Mary had been nice to the Greys and had elevated Catherine to the role of Lady of the Bedchamber, Elizabeth was a lot more, I don't want to say paranoid, but it's kind of like paranoid, but for good reasons. Because Elizabeth had, she'd been through some shit, so she had good reasons to not trust anybody. For starters, the Grey family still had a pretty bad reputation because the whole Lady Jane Grey scenario slash Catherine's father uh, being involved in acts of rebellion and being executed. Elizabeth also knew that her own claim to the throne at this point Like, put yourself in the shoes of, like, this just happened. She's 25 years old. She's kind of the third queen in a row. It hasn't yet been proven that England could even have a queen, that that was going to be okay. A lot of people still considered Elizabeth illegitimate. So there's still a lot of factions that were going to, that she, like, rightfully would have worried were going to usurp the throne from her. So there were, that includes some people who felt that Catherine should be the queen instead of her. And this was based on the whole Elizabeth being sort of illegitimate thing, slash people who felt that the Grey family, there was not the illegitimate part. So anyway, people didn't want Elizabeth to be queen. Lady Jane Grey, by this point, was already seen as a martyr 
because partly because her final letter had been published shortly after her death as propaganda. And in one of these, in this letter, Jane had identified Catherine as her spiritual and political heir. So that kind of put a target on Catherine to begin with. So everybody assumed, though, that Elizabeth was going to get married and have her own children pretty soon. So like, who would her heir be? It's like, well, probably, you know, the son that we assume that she will have. Elizabeth didn't know at this point that Catherine and Ned had this secret love connection going on. So as far as anybody knew, Elizabeth and Catherine were both young, unmarried women, and therefore uh, very valuable prospects to marry. And as soon as either of them had a child, specifically a son, that would kind of tip the scales to make more people support her above the other one. Like Elizabeth was the queen, but Catherine, if she got married, had a son, it wouldn't take much for people to back her and kick out Elizabeth. But also real talk. Elizabeth was, and I love Elizabeth. She's my girl. If you see the the avatar for this entire podcast, it's my face on a portrait of Queen Elizabeth. Like she was a mess and I love studying her. So Elizabeth was insecure, vain, and jealous, kind of like the evil queen in Snow White in the sense of, even though she was just 25, she saw any younger, prettier woman as a personal threat to her. Like she had to be the most beautiful, special, smart woman in any situation. And Catherine, who was related to her, also had red hair, seems to have been literally a younger, prettier version of Elizabeth. Like people would say how pretty Catherine was and people would just be like, Elizabeth, well, everyone said she was good looking because she was a queen and she made them say that. But I think Catherine was, you know, like softer and girlier and Elizabeth was jealous of her. So in a sort of Cinderella moment where Catherine and Mary Grey had been treated basically like princesses, Elizabeth downgraded them both. So instead of being gentlewomen of the privy chamber, they were moved over to what was called the presence chamber, which is just where the less important ladies in waiting would go so they would not have any alone time with the queen ever. They weren't given any preferential treatment at Elizabeth's coronation. This was Elizabeth's way of making clear to everybody who saw them that she did not trust the Greys, she had not forgotten the Lady Jane Grey scenario, and potentially didn't even actually consider Catherine her own heir. So she was just kind of sending out these signals to everybody like, Catherine Grey does not matter, she's not important, don't be good to her. But, of course, the thing is that Elizabeth herself, everybody quickly figured out, didn't want to get married anytime soon because she was in love with her married boyfriend, Robert Dudley, the son of John Dudley, who had engineered the Lady Jane Grey scenario. So another person who had a father killed as a traitor. That was just a thing a lot of people had in common at this point. So just a brief pause moment about Robert Dudley. So he was also Catherine Grey's former brother-in-law because his brother Guildford had been married to and then executed alongside Catherine's sister, Lady Jane Grey. So Robert and Catherine and Elizabeth and Ned had all known each other for years. It was like, they were like the cool young teens. It was Tudor court, the next generation. They were just, so just like high school, like a, like Riverdale, but with more people wearing pantaloons and corsets and more murders happening. Actually, no, similar amount of murders as happens on Riverdale. So Elizabeth publicly said, guess what? I'm not going to get married to anybody. I won't tell you why. And everyone's like, it's because she's in love with a married man. This is kind of weird. But with her saying like, I'm not going to marry anyone. I'm married to England. So this is just like, because of the ongoing crisis of who's going to be the heir, the her 
privy counselors slash everybody was like, okay, we need to sort this out because we can't have these ongoing wild Jane Grey scenario crises happening. Like it needs to be clear who is going to inherit from who and when and how. So with Elizabeth clearly not planning to have a child anytime soon, Catherine again began to seem like the potential next queen. This bothered Elizabeth a lot, which is like fair, but also she did this to herself by saying she's not going to get married. And it's not really Catherine's fault. It's sort of just what Catherine represented. Catherine, however, I mean, this became personal. Catherine was aware of how Elizabeth felt. Apparently, Catherine complained to the Spanish ambassador more than once about how she felt the queen was sidelining her and being mean to her. Apparently, one day, Catherine even yelled at Elizabeth in the presence chamber or possibly just like rolled her eyes or something. But everyone was like, "Ooh, that's unseemly. So there's kind of a Catherine versus Elizabeth rivalry going on. Just to place this all in context in terms of Catherine complaining about Elizabeth to the Spanish ambassador, just in terms of what's up with England and Spain at the moment. So Queen Mary I had been married to Philip, who was the king of Spain. And after she died, Philip tried to get Elizabeth to marry him, but she refused, obviously, because he was awful. So the fact that Catherine, Elizabeth's heir, was bitching about Elizabeth to the Spanish ambassador was a pretty big deal because Spain was kind of the enemy right now. So at this point, the Spanish ambassador's name was Feria, and he began scheming like, well, what if Philip, the king of Spain, married Catherine, and then the two of them could take over England together? So there's a question, did Catherine knowingly play along with this scheme? Like, did she want to marry Philip and take over England? I feel like not, but I also feel like she knew that that would bother Elizabeth, and that was a good power move for her. So, at the very least, she allowed herself to seem open to his suggestions, maybe just to figure out how to use him to her advantage. She had, by this point, stopped talking about wanting to remarry her childhood husband, Herbert, because she now wanted to marry Ned. But all that she told Faria was like, yeah, I don't really want to remarry Herbert. And Faria was like, great, that means that she'll marry Philip of Spain. So he took her seriously and began figuring out you know, could he marry her to Philip or is there another Spanish royal that he could marry her to? And he like began actively figuring out plans to stage her kidnapping and bring her to Spain as part of this long-term plan. So this is, remember this for when we get to scoring for the scandaliciousness. Meanwhile, Ned Seymour had been sort of ghosting Catherine because his mother was really didn't want him to be involved with her because she didn't want him to be executed. So Catherine might have at this point been using matters of international treason to make a play to make her boyfriend jealous, which I respect 10,000%. Good for her. She also knew that Elizabeth plan, Elizabeth had plans to go on a progress, which is one of those sort of things where the monarch just like brings her entourage and like travels around the country for the summer. So she knew that that was coming up, which meant that Catherine would get to see Ned again for Summer of Love Part 2. So this is where, so Feria was literally arranging like the minutia, like which ship was he going to send to kidnap her to Spain? Meanwhile, Catherine was just fantasizing about reuniting with her boyfriend. So she's playing a very dangerous game. She was loving it. I am loving it. I'm living for it. This is just like, love this girl. So then Elizabeth started out on her progress. And this is another thing where like everyone's just busy with other things to pay attention to what Catherine is doing, much to everyone's detriment. So during the progress, Elizabeth spent all of her time flirting outrageously with her married boyfriend, Robert Dudley, 
going hunting, dancing with him and stuff. And everyone is just like, oh my God, what's like, it's still weird to everyone to have a queen instead of a king, to have an unmarried queen who is just like, didn't want to get married and was flirting with a married man was like, what is happening? England was amazing right now. But Ned was not around. Catherine is lonely. Uh, Ned had written to her that he had fallen ill. Probably this was still his mother, Anne, making him stay away from her. But guess what? No mother could get in the way of these determined teens. And finally, Ned caught up with the progress. And it was during this period, their second summer together, that the two of them would later say that they fell truly in love, taking walks through the gardens and enjoying feasts and just hanging out all the time, being young and in love, taking advantage of the fact that (laughs) Elizabeth was busy with Robert Dudley and everyone else was busy gossiping about Elizabeth and Robert Dudley. So no one knew they were doing this. Okay, a couple people knew they were doing this. And some of the other courtiers warned Catherine that Ned was maybe just using her. Maybe he was. At this point, I don't really trust a Seymour man, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But it was a dangerous game. And I'm sure people warning them like, this is kind of treason. But by that October, so they spent the summer together. And by October, they were like, we're going to get married. And so Ned sent off to visit Catherine's mother, Frances, to get permission to get married. So our girl Frances Gray was happy to hear that Ned Seymour wanted to marry Catherine because she liked Ned Seymour and because she knew that this would strengthen her daughter's claim to the throne because Frances Gray was a clever person who was always kind of looking for angles and ambition. Again, she's very much the Chris Jenner of her age. She was also nice to her daughter in this at this point because she checked with Catherine like, do you want to marry Ned? Catherine's like, yes, I do. So then Frances is like, I support you both. So, but they had to figure out how to do this in order to not get in trouble. So she advised Ned to get to work, convincing other people that this was a good idea, just kind of behind the scenes, getting some support from other people specifically members of the Privy Council, so that when they brought it to the Queen, the Queen would agree, because she'd ask her counselors, like, is this a good idea? And they wanted to prep all the counselors to be like, oh, yeah, totally it is. So Ned was not gifted with persuasion. His first attempts to convince people at court to support him were unsuccessful. He's told the timing wasn't good and he should wait. And then Francis died that November. So he asked permission in October, One month later, she died, and she died before she's able to send a letter of her own to the queen, saying like, hey, these two want to get married, and it's cool. So Catherine and Mary Gray were with Frances as she died, and then Catherine served as chief mourner at the funeral, which Elizabeth paid for because they were relatives. And at this point, Catherine and Ned knew their chances of getting married anytime soon had kind of died along with Frances. Ned wrote Catherine a letter, or a poem in letter form, a letter in poem form, comparing their romantic challenges to those of the famous Greek lovers Troilus and Cressida, who had also been kept apart for political reasons. Ned seemed worried that, like Cressida, Catherine might leave him for another lover. And this was because she was again leveraging the Spanish (laughs) international treason to try and get him to put a ring on it. So the Spanish were again focusing their attention on her, on Catherine, uh, with hoping to use her to overthrow Elizabeth. But Ned needn't have worried because Catherine was, just like in Greece, hopelessly devoted to him. However, finally, the rumors of this Spanish plot to put Catherine on the throne finally got Elizabeth's attention. So 
Realizing that Catherine was actually a threat and not just this kind of inconvenient, pretty person to swat away, Elizabeth suddenly began treating Catherine much more kindly. I think it's the thing of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Elizabeth started planning rumors that maybe, like her sister, maybe she'll adopt Catherine, even though Elizabeth was just seven years older than Catherine, to formalize her role as heir to the throne. Catherine, I'm sure she didn't super trust what Elizabeth was up to, but she would have been happy to get better treatment, although her main priority was still finding opportunities to sneak off with her boyfriend, Ned. And as ever, Elizabeth was too busy running off hunting and hanging out with her married boyfriend, Robert Dudley, to notice or really care what Catherine was doing as long as it didn't involve the Spanish ambassador. So then, Jane Seymour, return of the BFF. So Ned's sister, Jane, and their brother Henry helped again, sneaking letters and tokens back and forth between Catherine and Ned. Catherine and Ned found every opportunity they could to sneak off together and make out and stuff, and people were just... More and more people started to clue into the fact that this was happening. But still, Elizabeth's behavior with Robert Dudley was still so much more scandalous that the Catherine and Ned stuff never really took off as the big gossip of the day. This point is around when Robert Dudley's wife was potentially murdered potentially by him after she fell down a flight of eight stairs, which is like a really short flight of stairs to break your neck from falling down. So there were rumors at this point that Robert Dudley had killed his wife, that maybe Elizabeth had gotten him to kill his wife. There's just a lot of, a lot of major scandals happening that really took the heat off of Catherine and Ned. So, however, William Cecil, Elizabeth's chief advisor, had found out about the Ned-Catherine scenario. He warned Ned to stop seeing Catherine due to the regime destabling nature of their possible union. And again, Ned, being pragmatic, I guess, um, listened to him and ghosted Catherine again. So Catherine became frantic. There were rumors that he'd been flirting with another woman. And then at the end of the day, Ned just couldn't quit her either. So Ned wrote to her proposing marriage and Catherine obviously agreed without anyone around to ask for the blessings well her mother wasn't around his mother wasn't gonna bless it they couldn't ask the queen so this was a secret sexy elopement situation so what they did is they snuck off into Jane's private room so again Jane Ned's sister Catherine's BFF and Jane was the witness to their formal betrothal Catherine Ned agreed they would get married at his home in London as soon as she was able to sneak away from the queen. Ned gave Catherine a ring and the betrothal was made official with a joining of hands and apparently an awful lot of hugging and kissing. But Catherine couldn't just run off at any time to get secretly married. She had to be clever about it. But with the help of like championship level BFF, Lady Jane Seymour, they figured out a strategy. So they got to London with a whole entourage. And Elizabeth was like, I'm going off for a hunting trip with Robert Dudley and I need all my ladies in waiting to come along with me. And Catherine was like, oh no, I can't. I have a toothache. And because it was the 16th century, Evan's like, ooh, that's true because there's not toothpaste yet. And so that was an okay excuse. And Jane offered to stay behind to keep her company. And Elizabeth is like, you do you. And she headed off with the other ladies in waiting, leaving Catherine and Jane unobserved. And so Ned had been there for dinner that night and he was like, okay, just come by my house first thing tomorrow morning. So the next morning, Ned gave all of his servants the day off so they wouldn't see what he was up to. Catherine and Jane snuck out of the palace and made their way on foot along the River Thames to Ned's house. At this point, it's late November and I don't live in England, but I feel like that's like a pretty cold situation to be walking along the, ri- 
walking along the River Thames in late November. But this is what they were doing, uh, so they were probably super cold. Ned greeted them at his house, where a few servants on their way out for their day off also uh, witnessed them arriving. Ned's like, don't worry about it, no big deal, no secret weddings happening here, but they need to get a priest. So Jane ran out into the street. It's just like a random morning, and she just was like, is there a priest anywhere on the street? Is there a priest on this 16th century sidewalk? on this winter's morning and she found a random priest who agreed to perform the ceremony because lady jane seymour was amazing so the random priest who they had found was i think one of the the protestants had all kind of like fled england during the reign of mary but then elizabeth was there so the protestants protestants kind of came back this is the whole um catherine willoughby episode we talked about that a bit so the identity of the priest becomes important later but he was probably someone who was just briefly in london before he went on somewhere else so the random priest performed the wedding ceremony for them in jane's bedroom and as part of the ceremony ned gave catherine a puzzle ring which side note that's let's bring that back i love a puzzle ring moment and the puzzle ring was engraved with a poem he had written for her that went quote as circles five by art compact show but one ring in sight so trust uniteth faithful minds with naught of secret might, whose force to break, but greedy death no wight possesseth power. As time and sequels well shall prove, my ring can say no more. Jane paid the priest ten pounds, which in today's money is five thousand US dollars, which was way more than the priest probably would have ever expected to be paid for a secret elopement in a bedroom. And then Jane had some banqueting meats prepared for them to eat but Catherine and Ned were just like we just need to like have sex right now so bye so Jane left the room and they consummated their marriage all night long um Catherine was by now 20 years old Ned was 22 they apparently had sex for literally for hours and then finally Catherine had to go because she and Jane had to be back at the palace for dinner the servants in Ned's house were back by this point and they all knew at least there was a bunch of sex happening upstairs and Ned kissed his wife goodbye and she and Jane had to go. So now they were secretly married and Catherine and Ned went on to have sex when and wherever they could, in whatever palaces they got to be with the queen, whenever they got a moment to themselves. Jane, just like, again, championship level, best friending here. She helped them meet up. She helped them exchange letters. And Catherine's servants quickly learned that when Ned showed up, they just should politely leave the room. They were never able to spend a whole night together but they clearly glowed with such love and adoration for each other that everybody eventually started to figure out that they were at least sleeping together. No one at this point other than Jane and the random priest, though, knew that they were literally married to each other. Uh, William Cecil, Elizabeth's minister, again, didn't like these two being together. He did not know they were married. And so to protect Elizabeth, he arranged for Ned to go on an extended holiday to Europe. Now, at this point, it becomes clear that Ned is not great at communicating with Catherine because he didn't, I guess he didn't tell her that he was going to go on the strip to Europe because she wound up hearing about it from Jane, his sister, her BFF. And Catherine was like, um, I'm sorry, you're going on holiday, but what if, for instance, it turns out I'm pregnant and you're not here and to help me out with how mad Elizabeth is going to be and how much trouble we're going to be in. And Ned was like, are you pregnant? Because if you're pregnant, I'll stay. And she's like, I don't, I don't know if I'm pregnant. And then apparently she, 
did she not know? Did she? He got so annoyed with her not knowing that he wound up going to Europe. And tragically, so just when she needed her best friend the most, Lady Jane Seymour fell ill again, this time with tuberculosis. And then she died just 19 years old on March 29th, 1560. She goes down in the Championship Best Friends Hall of Fame for sure. And not only was this a terrible loss for Catherine, the loss of her dear friend, but also Jane was the only witness to their wedding because nobody knew the name of the random priest or how to find him. So Ned really wanted to go to Europe. Catherine truly did not know if she was pregnant or not, and or maybe was in somewhat denial, knowing how much trouble she would be in if she was pregnant. And so finally they agreed that he could go, but he left her a letter that said, effective is sort of like a will sort of in case something happened to him so this is a letter that kind of said like if anything happens to me please note that i am married to Catherine, and she should inherit my lands because she is my wife but then in a horrible romeo and juliet level misunderstanding mix-up she lost this letter and it turns out uh she was in fact totally pregnant and he was by then gone in europe she kept the pregnancy hidden for as long as possible as because what else could she do this was a pretty scary situation to be in not just the like being pregnant in 16th century of it all but also the secret marriage jane being dead so there's no witnesses and the whole elizabeth probably being really mad about it all so she kept the pregnancy secret and or was in denial about it because as we talked about before this baby had a very strong claim to be the next king or queen of England, both from her Tudor grandmother and then also from Ned's royal ancestry. And if the baby was a son, then all bets are off because this would be the first boy potential ruler in the entire family tree that all the candidates were all women and girls. And people who wanted to replace Elizabeth would love to have this baby boy as a new option. So it was a pretty scary situation. And once Catherine finally accepted slash realized that she was pregnant, she wrote numerous letters to Ned in France, begging him to come back. But none of the letters reached him. Potentially, this is my theory, because she, I guess, addressed them all to my beloved husband instead of using his name. But the marriage was secret. So how were the messengers supposed to know who to deliver the letters to? Like once Jane leaves the story, there's just not a trusted courier to get these letters back and forth. And it just all gets kind of catastrophic. Also, potentially, another theory I have is that William Cecil or another one of Elizabeth's spies was secretly intercepting the letters to keep Ned away because that just made things worse for Catherine. So if we just take a step back and look at psychologically, this is a 20-year-old woman whose older sister, her father, her brother-in-law had all been executed for treason-related things. And she was now carrying a treason baby kind of, and her husband was missing, and her best friend had just died, and her mother was dead. This is a stressful situation. It, it's just like a, nothing is good about this. And Elizabeth has started being mean to her again, so life was not great for Lady Catherine Grey at this moment. So she finally figured out in the, the path of heroines on so many soap operas before her that if she couldn't get in touch with Ned, she needed to find somebody else to pose as her husband slash baby daddy so that it wouldn't being pregnant out of wedlock, which she wasn't, but if she couldn't prove her marriage, that's what people would think. Like that was bad news for her in the culture in which she lived in. But then also she, if she was married to someone who wasn't Ned, then maybe it wouldn't be so dangerous for everybody. So she decided to get back in touch with Herbert 
with her, the husband who she had briefly as a young tween before it was annulled. So at this point, Catherine was once again on progress with the queen, just like touring around the British Isles, visiting people and hanging out in castles. So this was the third summer, I guess, in this story, because the first one she met Ned at his house, the second one they were in progress together, and now she's by herself, pregnant and sort of abandoned. So she exchanged letters with Herbert while on progress, and he was actually pleased to hear from her because the Grey family, they got annulled because of the whole treason thing, but because of Catherine's mother's work, the Greys were not so toxic anymore. So he was like, this is great. So glad to hear from you after all this time. And she was like, so our marriage from childhood is basically still valid, right? Like it was really annulled, like we're basically married. And he's like, oh, sure. Yeah, that's a nice idea. And he began to like formally court her. But then he found out that she was pregnant and he knew that babies don't gestate for 10 years. Ergo, he was obviously not the father of this baby. And so he called things off because her motives were so obvious and so distasteful to him. To which I say, Herbert, goddammit. Like he could have saved the day, but he did not. And that sucks for her and everybody. So Catherine at this point, eight months pregnant, continued traveling on as a lady in waiting and everybody surely must have noticed she's pregnant at this point one would assume um it was just getting more visibly obvious and perhaps elizabeth some people theorize that elizabeth might have known and was just kind of like intentionally being mean to her because she knew she was pregnant and wanted to punish her but i don't i don't think that's true because when elizabeth finds out it's very clear she knows eventually catherine realized that she had to confide in somebody because she didn't have her best friend she didn't know what to do her mother was dead her older sister was dead. So looking around, she considered her options and eventually she decided to confide in her childhood friend, Elizabeth St. Lowe, who was the sister-in-law of Catherine's friend, Bess of Hardwick. So some, some records of this say that it was Bess of Hardwick that Catherine confided in because at this point, Bess of Hardwick's real name was Elizabeth, and she was at this point married to a man whose last name was St. Lowe. So Bess of Hardwick was a.k.a. Elizabeth St. Lowe, but that's not who Catherine talked to. She talked to Bess of Hardwick's sister-in-law, Elizabeth St. Lowe. So Elizabeth St. Lowe was one of the queen's gentlewomen of the privy chamber. So Catherine kind of thought, okay, this is someone who's really close with the queen, but she's also friends with me. Maybe she can like help smooth all this over. But in fact... Not a great choice because Elizabeth St. Lowe apparently wept inconsolably and panicked at being told this. She was like, why did you tell me this? Like, now I'm an accessory to treason. And she also was clearly not great at secret keeping because by the next morning, everyone at church was whispering about Catherine being secretly pregnant. So, so that didn't go well. But Catherine's like, I need, I need somebody to help me out here. I need somebody in my corner. And again, she looked around. She's like, who's somebody who I kind of know, but who also Elizabeth would would maybe be okay hearing this from. And so she decided on Robert Dudley, which is quite a decision. But remember, Robert Dudley was her former brother-in-law because Robert Dudley's brother, Guildford, has been married to Catherine's sister, Lady Jane Grey. And they all kind of knew each other from growing up and stuff. But he was also Elizabeth's boyfriend and loyal to her above everybody else. And he also kind of still hated the whole Grey family for how the Lady Grain scenario had led to the execution of his whole family. But Catherine was hoping that maybe the like former brother-in-law of it all would outweigh the other stuff. And Robert was like, mm, okay, I'll go talk to Elizabeth about this and see how it goes. His plan was probably, probably just knowing him, 
that the news of Catherine's pregnancy might cause Elizabeth to finally agree to marry him because it would mean that Elizabeth needed a child. So he was using this for his own means. But surprise, except not a surprise, Elizabeth was not like, oh my God, wow, I'm going to marry you now, Robert Dudley. In fact, she freaked the fuck out in the worst possible way, kind of understandably. And uh, Catherine was collateral damage, obviously, or not even collateral damage. She was like the main damage. So Firstly, so the reasons why Elizabeth freaked out, but also why it's kind of like, of course she did. First of all, she's the queen and all of her ladies in waiting had to get her permission to marry anyone. Secondly, Catherine was Elizabeth's heir and a possible future queen and a royal. So she couldn't just marry anyone. But for her to marry Ned, a man with his own claim to the throne, would thereby mean that the Catherine Ned baby would have a stronger claim to be king or queen than literally anyone else in England was like... If they'd asked permission, she would not have given permission. And now that this was happening, she was freaking out, obviously. Elizabeth also, because she was very paranoid, also understandably, based on her entire life up to this point. So she suspected that this marriage, secret marriage slash baby situation was part of uh, some sort of a plot. Maybe the Spanish or maybe the Scottish or maybe some people in England. But she was like, someone is trying to take over the country by having Catherine and Ned have a baby together. And that was not okay. So for all of the above reasons, Elizabeth had Catherine imprisoned in the Tower of London. And she recalled Ned from Europe so he could be thrown in jail too. He like uh, was like, sorry, I didn't get the message and kept trying to not come back because he knew he was in huge trouble too. Elizabeth also had Elizabeth St. Lowe dismissed from her duties in the Privy Chamber and she was sent to the Tower of London for ultimately six months for not telling the Queen about this secret. So, I mean, frankly, Elizabeth St. Lowe did that to herself. She learned the secret and then didn't tell the queen. So then she went, she should have told the queen. Should she have? I don't know. She used, that's collateral damage, Elizabeth St. Lowe. So again, Elizabeth and basically everyone assumed that this was part of a more complex political strategy than just two young, horny people falling in love because it had to have been. But like they were all playing this four-dimensional chess all the time when actually the story is so much more straightforward than that. But they were like, there must be some sort of secret angle to this. Because everybody, literally everybody, was constantly scheming. And Catherine's pregnancy with a potential new heir was a majorly serious political move by accident because it wasn't a political move. It was just her falling in love with the wrong guy. It wasn't a scheme. But when everyone is scheming, they can't wrap their heads around that sometimes a 20-year-old woman marries her true love and gets pregnant. So Catherine, by now, while this chaos happens, she's now nine months pregnant, and she was subjected to interrogation in the Tower of London, where they tried to get her to implicate other people in this, quote-unquote, scheme of, like, asterisks. There's no scheme. Like, it's a very straightforward thing that happened. And out of all of this, like, the compounding of the trauma. So she's now being held in the same place where her sister and father had been jailed and then executed. But, but like her sister, she behaved very bravely. She had a strong, stubborn streak and she refused to be intimidated. Meanwhile, Ned's mother, remember her, she distanced herself from his wildness, quote unquote, even as he was being finally dragged back to England from his European holiday for his own interrogations. Rumors were flying that the young couple would be executed, and he and his mother, in her way, were doing their best damage control to try and at least not get killed. When he arrived at the tower, he arranged to have flowers sent to Catherine, and he sought to find out from his jailers how she was doing, so... 
That's nice. The historian Leander Delisle, from whom I got a lot of this information from her excellent book, she hypothesizes he was also at this point working to ensure that his and Catherine's testimony would line up. So he wanted to get to talk to her to make sure that their stories would match so they would maybe not be executed because then as long as their marriage was recognized, their child would be considered legitimate and presumably they would not be killed. So he was, he was, he came back, he had, he had some schemes. And the legitimacy of Catherine and Ned's baby was the most important thing going on right now. Because if Catherine and Ned's marriage was declared legitimate, which would be tricky, what with the Jane Seymour being dead and nobody knowing the name of the random priest. But if the marriage was found to be legitimate, that meant their baby was also legitimate. And that would make the baby an incredibly dangerous threat to the queen, especially if it's a boy. So it's like, if the marriage is found legitimate, the baby is a threat. But if their marriage is found to not be legitimate, then they would both be guilty of illegal fornication. And then they might be in more trouble themselves. So it's kind of like, it's not, it's not quite lose-lose, but it's like not two great options. So Catherine and Ned's only defense against charges of illegal fornication were to explain that yes, they actually were married. And so the fact she was pregnant was not a problem. Only one side could win. The marriage would either be legally recognized and the baby then a threat or the marriage would not be legally recognized and then they were just like fornicators so catherine still having obviously a i'm we're gonna guess a miserable time being nine months pregnant and having to undergo days-long interrogations in the jail in which her sister was executed um elizabeth was also doing poorly because this is all the parallelism of this story so like like her sister mary the first elizabeth tended to lose her appetite when she was distressed so she was really stressed about all this like she was stressed about everything to the point that she hadn't been paying attention to Catherine and then it turns out she should have been paying attention to Catherine so just things are not going great for her someone who saw her Elizabeth around this time described Elizabeth as looking extremely thin and the color of a corpse so like not great Bob so nobody was having a good time with any of this. And then things got worse for everyone when Catherine gave birth on September 24th. For the first time in, I feel like, all of Tudor history, everyone was kind of hoping it would be a girl. Because if the baby was a girl, then it wouldn't be so much of a threat because it's just another girl, possible queen. There's already so many of them, but if it was a boy, then suddenly that child is so much more dangerous for people who wanted to usurp the throne from Elizabeth. Surprise, it was a boy. Catherine named her son Edward Seymour, and he was Viscount Beauchamp, which I guess is the inherited title of being a Seymour. So Ned's real name is Edward, so this is like Edward Seymour Jr. Two days after he was born, baby Edward was baptized in the Tower Chapel, feet away from where his aunt, Lady Jane Grey, both of his grandfathers, Catherine's father and also Ned's father, and other relatives had been interred following their executions. So welcome to the world, little baby Edward. Uh, with his existence... There was suddenly a Protestant male heir to the throne of England. And the only thing in his way at this point was the question of the legitimacy of his birth. So Elizabeth, Robert Dudley, literally everybody was running around scheming and freaking out. And Catherine just kind of was recovering from childbirth. She was moved to live within the mansion of the tower's lieutenant. So instead of like being the tower itself, she got to live in the, the Tower of London's lieutenant's house so at least she had a nice place to stay during her little maternity leave from jail they were being kind to her and she was able to keep her pet spaniels and monkeys with her side note i do not know at what point she acquired pet spaniels and 
monkeys, but it's nice she had them with her. My cat is here with me. She's like, finally, a story with some animals in it. So Catherine's just like, got her baby. She's recovering and it's like not jail, but in this mansion. She's got her monkeys with her. Like things could be better, but it's not as bad as it could be. Ned was also being kept in the same mansion, but in a separate apartment about 10 feet away from her. So they weren't allowed to see each other, but just knowing they were in the same space was probably reassuring to some extent. But through bribery and also playing on the sympathy of the guards, they were able to exchange notes like the guards would send letters back and forth. Ned was determined to appeal if their marriage was found invalid, but for the time being, all they could do is wait. 10 10 feet away from each other, exchanging notes with monkeys. So Elizabeth ordered an official church commission, like an investigation, like a, a commission, to investigate the legality of the marriage. The whole point of this was for them to find the marriage invalid, no matter what it took and if they had to lie or make it up, because Elizabeth needed the marriage to be invalid. She needed this baby Edward to be illegitimate, because that would that would destroy the threat that he posed to her. But so the commission was like, everyone knew what they were going to find, but they had to give the appearance of actually investigating. So what you might think it's easy to say, like this marriage that was held in the bedroom of your house with no living witnesses and no one can find the priest, like you'd think it'd be easy to say like, did that happen? Maybe not. But the tricky thing is that at this time in common law, The only requirements for a marriage to be found legal was for the bride and groom to consent to marry in front of witnesses. And Catherine and Ned both said again and again that they had done this. It's just one witness was dead and the other witness, I don't know his name. And to the point that Catherine and Ned both said if they saw the priest in person, they probably wouldn't recognize him. Like just random priest. No, no idea who he was. Again, like where where it should have been kind of easy to prove that they were married, it's circumstances conspired against them. But while this is all happening, Ned continued to bribe the guards to let him not just exchange notes with Catherine, but to visit her himself. So on May 25th, he was able to sneak into her room. And did they have sex? Of course they had sex. A little conjugal visit. He managed to sneak in to see her again four days later and they had sex again. And do you see where this is going? Because this is going to Catherine becoming pregnant for the second time. And now it's all even more complicated because by now they had both declared they were married in front of witnesses, e.g. the people interrogating them. And remember, that's the only law. That, that's the way to prove you're married. Like, as long as you say you're married in front of witnesses, then you're married. So this second child would be 100% legitimate. No question about it. Catherine now knew, unlike last time, she now knew what pregnancy felt like. So she figured out pretty quickly, oh shit, I'm pregnant again. But Ned was thrilled. She was happy. They're having like a little jail family together. The two of them, baby Edward, the monkeys, the spaniels, and a new little baby. Meanwhile, Elizabeth had other problems to deal with. Her life is just nonstop, really, in a lot of ways. So Elizabeth's issues with Mary Queen of Scots at this point were taking up much of her attention. And then Elizabeth came down with smallpox, which if you want to know about how gruesome and deadly that was, I have a mini episode. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's issues with Mary Queen of Scots were taking up a lot of her attention. And then she came down with smallpox. And if you want to know more about smallpox, go back a few episodes in your feed. I did a a special pandemic mini episode about smallpox. It is a pretty awful disease. So everyone was like, it sucks you're so sick, your majesty. But also, like, could you name an heir? Is Mary Queen of Scots your heir? Or is it Catherine Grey? Or is it baby Edward? Like, who's going to inherit when you die? Not that I'm saying you're going to die, but like, 
Mm, are you gonna die? And Elizabeth was like, I won't tell you who my heir is because I refuse to die. And she was right. She did not die at that point. So Elizabeth was like, okay, everyone, I'm 29 years old. I might have a child one day and I will not tell you who my heir is because if I tell you who my heir is, then that person will be used as a figurehead to try and usurp the power from me. So I will never, ever, ever tell anyone who my heir is, ever. And her previous counselors were like, but what if we told you that, guess what, Catherine Gray, the person who you sent to jail for getting pregnant, is pregnant again in jail. And Elizabeth is just like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh my God. So she was incredibly upset about all of this for all the reasons we've gone through. And also just like, she was under a lot of stress, Elizabeth, at this point. But also because she had thrown Catherine and Ned in jail for fornicating. And then they like, well, in jail, continued to fornicate which is just like, you know, a little disrespectful of her, maybe, she would think. So she had the lieutenant of the tower thrown in jail because it was his house that they were living in when they had sex and she, Catherine, got pregnant. Catherine and Ned were brought in for new interrogations, but not even Elizabeth could stop nature from taking its course. And so on February 10th, Catherine gave birth to a second child who was, guess what, another son who she named Thomas Seymour. So Elizabeth is freaking out, obviously, about these two little babies, like the first one who was like, maybe technically illegitimate, sort of, but the second one, it's like, was legitimate and had this claim to the throne. And so Elizabeth is freaking out. Meanwhile, public opinion uh, was very much on the side of the young lovers, because of course it was. This is an incredibly romantic love story. And if not for the political angle, everyone knew that those two would have been considered married in the first place. Like the whole thing was bullshit and everyone kind of knew it was kind of bullshit. And they supported these two young people against the unmarried queen. Elizabeth wouldn't allow a priest to attend the baptism of baby Thomas, but two of the prison guards agreed to stand up as his godparents because the jailers were totally shipping Catherine and Ned. And this, this story has like a lot of like little sweet moments like that. Anyway, Elizabeth is just like, okay, I have to do something about this. Not just like the fact that these two boys are potential rivals to me, even though they're literally babies, but also because public opinion is turning towards Catherine and against me. The more people sided with Catherine, the more likely it was that these supporters might try to depose Elizabeth. So it was impossible to declare Thomas illegitimate, but Elizabeth did what she could. She put Ned publicly on trial for seducing a virgin of the blood royal, which is, frankly, a great charge name and makes me think of vampires. I'll just say it again. Again, the charge was seducing a virgin of the blood royal. And then Ned was also put on trial for conspiring with a lieutenant to get to see Catherine, even though he was in jail. And then he was also charged for sneaking out of his jail cell which he pretty indisputably did because he had sex with Catherine. Ned was found guilty on all three charges and he was fined 5,000 pounds for each crime. So 15,000 pounds total. So I put that into a currency converter. So remember how Jane Seymour paid the random priest 10 pounds and that was the equivalent of 5,000 modern day US dollars. So 15,000 pounds in modern day money is like according to this currency converter, infinity modern day dollars, like an unimaginable amount. So this wasn't something that Elizabeth expected to be repaid ever. It was just sort of showing like money cannot even account for how much you have betrayed me with this seducing a virgin of the blood royal. The point of this was to punish him forever 
and to show everyone to not fuck around with Elizabeth. Now, it was coming up to the 10-year anniversary of Lady Jane Grey's death, which time flies, and her story was becoming trendy again. People were like, mmm... Like, flashback, remember 10 years ago, the Lady Jane Grey scenario? That was weird. There were rumors spreading, totally not true, that Jane had been pregnant at the time of her execution. Like, 10,000% Jane Grey was not pregnant at the time of her execution. But this made people more sympathetic to her as this kind of martyr figure. And then it also sort of connected her with Catherine, who was now in jail with a baby and a toddler, facing her own possible execution. People kept supporting Catherine, much to Elizabeth's annoyance, and... Like, just the image of Catherine, who was younger and prettier than Elizabeth, but kind of looked like her, with also, like, pale skin, red hair. So she's, like, a prettier, younger Elizabeth, married with two sons. And it was just sort of, like, in this sort of patriarchal society, the fact where Elizabeth is, like, not as pretty, not married, no children. Like, people are like, oh, let's side with the, like, wife and mother who's pretty. Around the same time, a portrait was done up of Catherine with Edward, which was duplicated and spread around as propaganda for the people who supported her against Elizabeth. It is also, fun fact, the oldest known image of an English woman with her baby. Later that same year, because there's not enough happening, Jesus Christ, there was an outbreak of plague in London. Elizabeth, like her father before her, was an early adopter to what we now know as germ theory, and so she fled for the countryside to get away from all the sickos. Catherine, trapped in the Tower of London with her two sons, monkeys and dogs, was desperate to avoid the disease. Obviously, she did not want to die at this point. So she had her advocates, so basically just people who, her supporters. Her supporters begged the queen to let Catherine move elsewhere, and finally Elizabeth relented and let Catherine be moved into house arrest. But there was a catch. Catherine was to be separated from her husband and one of her children, the older one. So Ned and baby Edward were sent to live with Ned's mother, while Catherine and baby Thomas were sent to stay with her uncle, Lord John Gray. Catherine was forbidden to contact Ned or her sister Mary Gray, who is still around, and we'll talk about her next episode and explain what she was up to. Spoiler, secret marriage also. Catherine was also forbidden to visit with anyone while she was in her uncle's house slash house arrest. And less than a month after her arrival, Catherine was reported to have fallen into a deep depression, which like, oh, wow, you think like not just did she have like two babies back to back. So was dealing with like postpartum issues. She also had to deal with literally everything that had happened in her life to this point. She missed Ned and baby Edward terribly. She cried constantly. She didn't eat very much. And she said things like, I would to God I were buried. William Cecil still supported her as a potential heir because he didn't like Mary, Queen of Scots because of the whole Catholic Scottish thing. Catherine didn't give a shit. Like, she didn't want to be queen whatsoever. That was not... All she wanted to do was to be with Ned and, like, have her little family. So she... Just her name. Like, not even her. Like, her image and her name were being used by people who wanted to dump Elizabeth. She just wanted to be with her family. I don't know if her monkeys were still with her. I like to think they were. William Cecil helped Catherine compose a letter to the queen to relent and to let her out of jail. Robert Dudley even agreed to deliver the letter because he was the only person who could safely do so without incurring the queen's wrath because the queen was in love with Robert Dudley. 
Catherine was hopeful that this letter would free everybody. And so she wrote a letter to Ned, even though she wasn't allowed to send letters to Ned. Like, obviously, there's shippers everywhere. And they sent her letter to Ned. And so in her letter, Catherine wrote saying, like, I hope this letter to the Queen will work and we get to reunite soon. Tragically, no, Elizabeth rejected her appeal. They, the lovers were to remain apart. Any hope that she had had from writing this letter evaporated at this point. Catherine wrote to William Cecil, I rather wish of God shortly to be buried than in this continual agony to live. Her uncle John Gray was implicated for his own scheming. He had been scheming to try and get more support for Catherine as potential heir. And when Elizabeth found out, John Gray and the other conspirators were thrown in jail where John died, potentially by suicide and or depression. I just want to heads up that this story is we're we're out of delightful charming moments and it's just kind of misery from now on so if that's not what you're in the mood for i understand if you need to step away so catherine and baby thomas were moved to a different house slash jail because their uncle was now dead and in jail and they remained there for the next three years then that jailer fell ill and so she had to be moved again She continued, though, to communicate via secret letters with Ned, who replied to her letters with gifts and tokens. Then, in 1566, Mary, Queen of Scots, gave birth to a son. This now meant that Catherine was no longer the only Tudor heiress married with a son, and Mary, Queen of Scots, being already a literal queen, had much more power than the depressed, imprisoned Catherine. And actually, Elizabeth secretly kind of preferred Mary, Queen of Scots, to be her heir because because she was a queen, you know, queens support queens, etc. So Elizabeth was working at this point to try to protect Mary, Queen of Scots, while simultaneously punishing Catherine and Mary Grey. Again, next week, I'll explain what Mary Grey was being punished for. Mary, Queen of Scots, having the son was kind of not good news for Catherine, but also not bad news for Catherine, just kind of like complicated everything else. Anyway, but then the whole thing happened where Mary Queen of Scots' husband, Lord Darnley, was found murdered and his house was exploded. And it looked like Mary Queen of Scots had conspired to murder him. And I'm glossing over this just because I'm probably going to do like a 12-part new season at some point, just getting into the Mary Queen of Scots saga. But effectively what this means is that Mary Queen of Scots suddenly seemed like not a great option to be the next queen of England because she seems to have exploded her husband. So Catherine's supporters, she still had supporters, even though she didn't want them. She was just like being sad and lonely all the time. There were people who wanted her to be queen just because they didn't like Elizabeth. So her supporters, they spread the rumor that Mary was in fact responsible for the murder explosion. And Elizabeth was unable to continue protecting her, even though secretly she liked her best. Meanwhile, Catherine herself, she personally, she posed no threats. Like she was this not doing great medically slash psychologically speaking young woman in her mid 20s. She was not about to like raise an army against Elizabeth, but people working in her name were threatening to Elizabeth because everyone was threatening to Elizabeth. That was, that's just what her life was like. So to keep Catherine from becoming a figurehead to these rebels, Elizabeth instructed Catherine's jailers not to let her interact with anybody. So like, great, like, let's just keep this depressed woman even more isolated. 
So Catherine was moved again. At this point, it was her fifth prison in seven years. When her new jailer saw her for the first time, he was shocked at how poorly she looked. She was pale and thin, shoulders bowed, not a hint of her former vitality or it girl status. The various descriptions of her throughout this period sound like someone describing somebody who has been dealing with depression for a long period of time. Catherine had low energy. She ate very little and she spoke constantly about wanting to die. Again, you might want to step away from this podcast because, yeah. So on January 26th, 1568, a doctor was sent for and he found there was little to be done for Catherine, who seemed to have starved herself and would no longer eat. Catherine recited prayers and had psalms read to her. The household servants surrounded her, one encouraging to her that she could yet live a long life. And Catherine said, quote, no, no, no life in this world, but in the world to come, I hope to live ever for here is nothing but misery and there is life everlasting. After several hours, Catherine passed along her final requests. She asked for a message to be sent to the queen, begging forgiveness for marrying without permission. She also asked the queen to be good to her two sons and to Ned. Catherine then asked that Ned be sent tokens, I guess a return of some of the tokens he had sent to her. She wanted him to have returned the ring he gave to her upon their betrothal, her wedding ring, and a third memento mori ring. The memento mori ring had been engraved with a message for Ned, it says, while I lived, yours. Catherine's final words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. She then closed her own eyes with her hands and her death was recorded at nine o'clock that morning. She was just 28 years old. So after this, so her son, Thomas, her second son, was now four years old. He was moved to live with his father, Ned, and Catherine's older son, Edward, who is by now six years old. Queen Elizabeth ordered Catherine's final jailer to oversee the internment and burial of Catherine. She was buried in a chapel in Yoxford, which is near where she had been staying, where she died, rather than in Westminster Abbey, uh, as her her mother and other royal relatives had been. And this is partially because Elizabeth wanted to downplay Catherine's importance. She didn't want her to become like Lady Jane Grey, like another figurehead, because now her sons were still around. Like She just didn't want to remind anyone that Catherine was royal at all. But still, she was a, a woman of the blood royal. Certain protocols had to be adhered to, just as had been done for Mary I. Catherine's body was embalmed and sent, set out for a round-the-clock vigil watched over by servants. 77 official mourners were dispatched from London, who arrived with an impressive entourage. Elizabeth, to no one's surprise, did not attend the event, but apparently she unconvincingly pretended to be sad back at home and nobody bought her act obviously Catherine's death was a relief to her the Spanish ambassador noted that the queen had long been afraid of Lady Catherine Grey two years after Catherine's death Ned was freed from house arrest he would go on to marry twice more weirdly both of them still secret elopements uh, and he wound up back in prison once more because he just like couldn't not elope secretly Throughout his life, he worked to try and have his sons, Edward and Thomas, restored to the royal succession, but they never were. When Edward was 19 years old, and coincidentally, staying in the same Seymour family house where Catherine and Ned had first met, he fell in love with a gentlewoman named Honora Rogers, and he asked Queen Elizabeth for permission because he had learned from his parents' life. Queen Elizabeth happily permitted this marriage because Honora Rogers was a gentlewoman and not a royal, and by marrying a not 
royal person this effectively removed edward from ever being king because his wife wasn't fancy enough and this was one less heir for her to worry about elizabeth died in 1603 and before she died she named james stewart the son of mary queen of scots as her heir however there was this faction of people who continued on to believe that the true heirs should have been Catherine's sons. And this really bothered James, the new king, nearly as much as it had bothered Elizabeth. So people learned to just like not bring this up around him. Ned lived until 1621. He died at age 84. In 1625, King James died and he was succeeded by his son, King Charles I. By this point, so many years had passed, Charles didn't really care about the whole Catherine Grey scenario, meaning that finally her descendants were able to have her remains reinterred next to Ned in Salisbury Cathedral, so their joint tomb can still be viewed. So it's a tomb for Ned and Catherine. There's a Latin inscription on the tomb that translates to incomparable consorts who experienced in the vicissitudes of changing fortune at length in the concord that marked their lives here rest together. And eventually her sons were retroactively declared to be legitimate. Her descendants, so through Edward, who married Honora Rogers, Catherine Grey's descendants include Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, aka Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lion. So the Queen Mum, like Queen Elizabeth II's mother. Through her, so Catherine Grey's descendants include Queen Elizabeth I and all of her heirs, including Prince William and Prince Harry. So Elizabeth worked so hard to keep Catherine and her sons from ever becoming on the throne. And yet they are. So suck on that, basically. This is like a super maxi episode. This I had to take a break in the middle to, to get something to drink because this story is just there's so much to get into. And now it's time to go to score Lady Catherine Grey on our Scandalicious scale. In terms of scandaliciousness, this is how juicy are the scandals in which she was involved. And we've got some very juicy scandals here. We've got the secret marriage. We've got the secret pregnancy. We've got the conceiving a second child while in jail of it all. I mean, just like having the pregnancy, revealing it to, to people, like the dramatic pregnancy reveal, like this is all like very soap opera-esque. I'm going to give her a, oh God, like not a 10. I'm going to give her a nine for scandaliciousness, I think, because this is just like top tier scandaliciousness in terms of scheminess. So this is where like towards the end she was depressed and wasn't doing much of anything, which is understandable given what her life is like at that point. But prior to that, if you think about the scheminess of like having the secret love affair, having the secret wedding, but even before that, like when she was like playing the Spanish ambassador to make Ned jealous, like her scheminess was... It wasn't to the level of the like political scheminess, but her sort of like interpersonal scheminess, I think, was very high tier. Like she practically like she like the Spanish ambassador was working on like hiring a ship to kidnap her, to marry her to the king of Spain. But she didn't mean that because she was just doing that to make Ned want to propose to her like top tier scheminess. I'm going to give her honestly, I'm going to give her an eight for scheminess because that's just like she almost caused a war in playing mind games with her boyfriend. And that's very schemey of her. 
significance is tricky with her because so her heirs did end up becoming involved in it did end up becoming the royal family her significance to elizabeth was so much that it kind of ruined both of their lives there for a while her significance what but what's her significance like to history is i don't know like she made there is significance for sure like she didn't actively pass a legislation or whatever but she was I'm going to give her a seven for significance. And then the final category is the sexism bonus. Where, So like how much was she fucked over by living under the patriarchy? And I'm going to say like a lot because if she was a boy, if any of the greys had been boys, the supporters would have rallied behind her and she would have become king. But at the same point, I don't think she wanted to be king. It was sort of like it wasn't just the sexism that got on her way it was kind of elizabeth and elizabeth wasn't upholding sexism necessarily like in a sense sexism kind of helped her like that's why the people kept supporting her because she was married with sons i'm gonna give her a basic five because no one no woman in history has ever experienced less than a five in sexism and she is not any different so let me just see so that's a 29 let me just double check my math 29 where this lands her is 0.5 below her older sister, Lady Jane Grey. Yeah, so she's just outside of the top five, effectively, on the scandalous scale. And I feel like for such a short life, where she spent a lot of it incapacitated for health-related psychological reasons, it's quite, quite a strong showing, truly. I really love her. I think that this story is one that's not told enough and I think it's really sad at the end but also it's so thrilling and interesting throughout it there's twists and turns there's monkeys Lady Catherine Grey everyone honestly this is the Vulgar History Podcast I am Anne Foster I have a couple of reminders to tell you firstly I don't usually say this on the podcast because I don't want you to feel pressure at all but if you want to rate and or review this podcast in itunes or other places please go ahead and do that i am in canada so i can't always see what the reviews are from other countries but i just figured out a way to see the ones from the u.s and there were two beautiful reviews the first one is from roxana hannah who says coffee with the side of european history really like this podcast i feel like Anne is a friend who's teaching me about interesting history over coffee or wine I hope she keeps making episodes because I love the figures she has chosen as well. And then the second review is from Janae Ryan, who says, So fun. This is exactly my jam. Give me that feminist history with a touch of humor. This is so well done. Best listened to with a fresh cup of tea. Now, first of all, thank you both so much for these reviews. Secondly, so Roxana suggests listening to this podcast with coffee or wine and Janae recommends listening to the podcast with a fresh cup of tea so what i would say is if you're thinking of putting in a review which again no pressure please include what beverage pairing do you have for this podcast coffee wine or tea or other i'm i would love to know so if you want to do that feel free but again no pressure you can find more of my writing including the essay upon which this podcast episode was based at annfosterwriter.com. This podcast does an Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, on Twitter at Vulgar History. You can support 
me slash this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Writer, And that's where you can find the So This Asshole mini episodes about gross men from history, including Thomas Seymour and Robert Dudley. So that's where you can find that stuff. Also, there's a merch store. All these links are in the show notes, too. So at teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. I've got shirts up there. Um, there's one, at least one per each episode this season, just celebrating the various women we're looking at in this weird nine episode Jane Grey situation. And I keep a list at bookshop.org and that link is in the the show notes as well uh vulgar history recommends so all the books that i have referred to on this podcast ever are all listed there so you can find them and if you want to buy them that will support local independent bookstores so like in the memory of lady jane gray uh, an unsung woman writer of history you know support some bookstores that is the longest episode i've ever done thank you for going on this wild journey with me take care keep your masks on tits out and i'll talk to you next time Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.